0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by Squarespace, Harry's.com, and The Great Courses Plus. And we're back. Oh, yeah. That's your – still working on that Michigan L- little, accent. Still, yeah, still got it. Came with me. Yeah, <laughs> came back with me. We are back, and we owe a debt of gratitude to every single one of you that's listening to this show right now. On October 2nd of 2014, we
1: posted our first episode of this show, having no idea if anyone would find the things that we found interesting – worth listening to us prattle on about. Well, two and a half years and 71 episodes later, we've passed 20 million total downloads. And frankly, we're amazed we've gotten this far. Uh, Yeah, by the way, whatever you do, please don't go back to the first episode.
0: (laughs) Well, no, that's
1: fine. You can go back to the early ones. It's just a lot more of what probably what annoys you about our show. Well, we'd like to think that we've evolved some since those early shows. And the funny thing is, is that the first episode wasn't even really technically our first show. Oh, here comes some astonishing trivia. Yeah, exactly. Our eighth show was actually the first recording session we ever had. That's right. And it's one of the more polarizing topics because it's a story that people either, well, let's say either you got it and you liked it or you didn't get it and you didn't care for it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's called The Devil in the Diner.
0: Yeah, and that show, even though some people didn't get it, it actually had a lot of legs because the Fireside Mystery Theater, which is a podcast that has been supporting us a long time, and we've been supporting them in turn. They do a yeah. radio drama performances. Great and performers on yeah, stage. Yeah, very cool. And they adapted Devil in the Diner to a performance that they did on stage in Manhattan, in New York City. And then also some friends of mine that I used to work with who are both directors and editors and producers themselves, uh, Zeke O'Donnell and Peter Sabatino, produced a handmade animated digital short. I mean, they yeah, use some yeah. After Effects and other stuff like that. That's very cool. And you can still see to this day on our
1: YouTube channel. Both are very cool and creative representations, interpretations of that story. So yeah. check them out. Yeah. yeah,
0: whether you liked the story or not, which, which we <laughs> right. both did. And yeah. that was an interview with Paula Pell, who's a comedy writer, television and film comedy writer, very accomplished. And we had done it much earlier that year, 2014, but I honestly, I was nervous about it because we were so lucky to get her on the show. I was reluctant to make it our very first episode because I knew we still didn't really know what we were doing. Mm. And we wound up waiting and making it our eighth episode after we had kind of gotten our sea legs there.
1: Are just in time for the giant squid to attack. Oh, back off that metaphor, dude. <laughs> well, it's a little late for that now, isn't
0: it? All right. The point is— Well, what is your point? The point is we just wanted to say thank you so very much for supporting the show, and especially supporting our sponsors, too, because that, after all, is what actually keeps the lights on around here. Uh,
1: yes, indeed it does. And now that we've got our foot in the door of the podcasting world, we need to push it open a little bit wider. I, I feel like maybe that's breaking and entering. <laughs> Again, that's a metaphor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, podcasting. <laughs> Casting, as anyone can tell you, is developing explosively. It's exponential here, and the major players are getting in the game. And before long, it'll be hard for indie shows like Astonishing Legends to even get off the ground as they're going to be crowded out by well-funded networks with celebrity hosts and tons of dough to spend on marketing, which will make it impossible for an independent
0: show like ours to even get noticed in the first place. Yeah, and to a certain extent, that's already happening. We feel, however, that we've got room to grow, and you guys are our biggest asset. Our marketing budget is $0.00. We've come this far on word of mouth, and we don't want to stop here. We want to continue to get the word out so we can someday maybe even branch out into fostering new shows or creating some kind of network of our own to help other indie podcasters get off the ground. It's crazy to us that according to the vaunted Edison Research Company, over half the people, in the United States anyway, have never heard a podcast. So go forth. Teach them, bring them to the light. you get an a culty there. <laughs> Everyone knows you're supposed to stay away from the light, Carol Ann. All right, it's a metaphor first. <laughs> Well, touche then. All right. Anyway, you're right. I'm being long-winded. We need more earballs. So please tell your friends and family about us. And don't stop with just telling them about us. Show them how to listen and how to subscribe to us. There's a ton of platforms out there now, but it's still not as easy as it should be. And a lot of people need a little help figuring it out. That they do, and we're anxious to welcome them to the fold because after all, as far as we're
1: concerned, we're just getting started.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest
1: Burgess. Where there is mystery, it is generally suspected there must also be evil.
0: Lord Byron. Join us tonight as we take a look at the town that disappeared, leaving little more behind than a haunted cemetery and tales of a witch's curse, Parashaney, Michigan. When we were invited to Detroit a few weeks ago, uh, we were asked to come speak about a Michigan legend or specifically a Michigan folklore tale. Yeah, did we tell you about that? Yeah, did we, we did. We did mentioned we it last it week. Yeah, times, I know, right? I know. But we considered quite a few, Yeah, and Michigan is rich with them. There's the Michigan Dogman, The Zug Island Hum, Mm. Le Rouge. Le Rouge, yes. The Witch's Chair. Uh,
1: That's at the Brookside Cemetery in Tecumseh. And it dates all the way back to 1853. Yeah, we're going to
0: talk about that in a little bit. It's also the official birthplace of Paul Bunyan. That is right, yes, and his ox babe. But however, there was one story in particular that caught our eye after it was brought to our attention by paranormal researcher, investigator, and author of nonfiction and fiction books about the paranormal, Debbie Chestnut. That's right. Her most recent book, by the way, is called Something Wicked, A Ghost Hunter Explores Negative Spirits. And it deals with dark entities, demons, and exorcisms. And she's also working on a new book as we record this. Yeah, I believe she's actually wrapping that one up this week. Debbie indirectly
1: was involved with the sludge entity. So she's the real deal. Yeah, but it, anyway, we'll, yeah, that's we'll talk how we got this. to know her, and she's <laughs> exactly. she's
0: been very helpful to us over the past few months, especially with regard to prepping for our Detroit show. And and since then, we've become friends.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, she mentioned several topics, but the one I think that uh, immediately jumped out at us, as we said, is Perishani because it had all the elements of a great haunted cemetery story.
0: Yes, at Perishani is a little town right in the middle of what Michigan residents call the Mitten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like your hand, right. Is. So, and, and like if you ask them where they're from
1: in Michigan, they'll hold up their hand. Yeah, everybody Michigan. holds up their hand. <laughs> right. And then
0: if they're in the Upper Peninsula, they hold their other hand above and say, <laughs> right here, right here, there's yeah, a lot the, of pointing. The
1: UP, yes.
0: The thing about Parrishania is you can't even find it on a lot of maps these days. No, it helps to have the GPS coordinates because yeah. it's a town that's been erased. There's very little left of it except for some old train tracks. And it vanished almost entirely by 1917 just 44 years after it had been founded in the first place. So it is hard to find, but you can get there. It's visible, and it has daytime hours. Yes, but it's a little bit in the middle of nowhere. It's halfway between the towns of Grayling and Common. and all that's left, as we said a few minutes ago, were some old train tracks from the Jackson, Lansing, and Saginaw Railroad, which was built in 1871 and was heading towards Mackinac City.
1: Right. The town was established. Actually, it was kind of a rail stop to begin with in 1873 when George M Shaney received a land grant from the Michigan Central Railroad to establish a stop along that rail line that had just been built between the towns of Gaylord and Jackson because you need to stop for supplies and drop things off. And, and the, the lumber business was booming then. That's right.
0: And para, as in para chaney, means father in mm-hmm. French. And as you know, Michigan's early history is closely connected to French colonial occupation. So somehow out of that French influence, we got para or the town's Papa Shaney. Yes,
1: the founder. Well, you remember our Perfutar from our Krampus Christmas show? Oh, yeah. Uh, Speaking Speaking of of the early early shows. The early (laughs) offerings, the Krampus one. Well, he's the sadistic imp with a strong sense of justice because he would (laughs) accompany St. Nicholas on St. Nicholas's day, which is December 6th. And he would hand out lumps of coal and or floggings to naughty children. And he also recently got in trouble for wearing blackface, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah. But yes, anyway, he's known as Father Whipping. So that's the idea though. George Shaney is
0: kind of the founder of this one time rail stop that blossomed into a town. Yeah, and eventually it became known as the Shaney Depot. And just for the record, Shaney is actually spelled just like Cheney as in Dick Cheney. Well, in case you're wondering yeah, what they're saying. There is a lake up in my territory called Cheney Lake. Oh, yeah, see, there that's you go. Cool. but see,
1: so there's Cheney and and they call it Dick Cheney Cheney, but yeah. that's actually
0: pronounced Cheney. So yeah, you take your pick. But yeah. here, I think with the French, it's, it's Cheney. Cheney. Yes. The Cheney Depot would provide gas, water, services for the passengers who were passing through the area, kind of like those uh, blue highway signs you see today when you're on the freeway gas, food, and lodging. Well, yeah, you got to stop off
1: at some point, even if you're a train. Well, we also found out that Paracheney was just referred to as center planes around that time, or just Cheney. And this is important to know because if you're doing any kind of genealogical research on it, for example, you might not find people because you're looking for the wrong city name. So it's not clear if it was an official name for the town or just a local nickname that wound up sticking.
0: Yeah, because I know, for example, for me, when I went on to Ancestry.com and I was trying to dig down on some of the people that are in the cemetery there that you couldn't find anything on them when you looked them up via the name Parashaney. But right. when you looked up Center Plains, they would pop up. But all the locals clearly called it, and it's been handed down through oral tradition, it's been called Parashaney. Yeah. No, Center Plains, I think, was the more formal, traditional,
1: and geographically correct you know, name for the area. But like a lot of things, the nickname sticks.
0: Yes. And that's what and you remember in it by. And in, in most of the town's early settlers were lumberjacks and farmers who were following the booming logging industry, which was developing along those rail lines heading towards Mackinac City, which is at the northernmost tip of the mitten. For most people, if you're hand is, like the majority of people, it would be right up there by your the top of your middle finger. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, are you insulting me? Blake? Yes, I, oh, I am. No, I'm Here, sorry, let me show you. Oh, it's a map thing. <laughs> yes, very good. You know, <laughs> or or it would be, I'm that. sorry, I hate it when it does that. Um, but the mitten is also called the Lower Peninsula, <laughs> Yes, which is a peninsula, for those of you not in the States or who failed geography, uh, mm. because it's surrounded by two of the great lakes, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, Which actually really is only one lake. It's one body of water, which I only just found out today. So I'm going to go ahead and cop to that. Technically, you can call it Lake Michigan Huron, or I guess there's people who call it Lake Huron, Michigan. (laughs) Depending (laughs) on your, maybe there's a big fight about that. I don't know. But taken together, they are the largest freshwater lake, or it is the largest (laughs) freshwater lake. In the world by volume, and it's no stranger to folkloric tales themselves, including the infamous Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, sing us I don't a know few why bars. Said it like that. I'm not yeah. singing. Are you kidding? We digress. Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Are you serious? Bigger than Lake Baikal. Or yeah. It's not, de- it's not as deep. Yeah, no, not as deep. That's the deepest
1: freshwater yes, lake ever. Exactly. But I think it's by like seven volume. Miles.
0: And in fact, it's not very deep at all. I think it's only a couple hundred feet deep at its deepest point.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. But they get massive storms, yes. uh, wild, crazy storms, and of course the lake effect, and they get some wild weather up there, and you got to be a pretty
0: hardy person to survive all that. That's absolutely right. So at the heart of the development of the little town of Parrishainey— was George M. Shaney's sawmill, which seemed to be doing pretty well because George Shaney ultimately built a hotel called Shaney House to accommodate the increasing influx of lumberjacks settlers and tourists to the area. And also, he wound up building two more sawmills. I think ultimately there were three sawmills in Yeah, th- It was
1: doing very well. The right, because business. there's yeah, there's tons of raw material there, tons of trees to plow through. And so, yeah, it was kind of booming and business was doing really well. And by December 1st of 1874, the one-year-old town of Parrishiany established a post office. And that's how you know you're a real town. Yes. It's like Steve Martin finding his own name in the phone book. I am somebody! <laughs> well, in three years' time, you had the two or three sawmills, but you also had a general store, a school, and a couple of carpenters, a doctor, a wagon maker, and the hotel even had a telegraph service. So there you go, you had to get the foundings of a
0: little of a nice little town there. And six years later, it even became the county seat in 1879 when Crawford County, where it lies, was officially established. However, neighboring Grayling, which we mentioned earlier, became more populated and eventually it took over the mantle of county seat. And in 1878, it became clear that the town
1: needed a cemetery. So just southeast of the town, right along the railroad, just as everything was, five acres was set aside to act as the official resting place for
0: Parashaney's dead. What happens next is kind of fuzzy, but the legend and lore of Parashaney, as told through oral history in the area, says that among the town's residents, there was a witch. We must consider what a witch really is, or how
1: a woman came to be known as one, but that is for later in the show. For now, suffice it to say that people feared her for one reason or another, be it the practice of black magic or something more mundane, and according to the legend, she was banished to the woods surrounding the town, at which point she cursed the town. I curse this town and all of you in it with fire, plague, death, and destruction. And off into the woods she went with her bindle possibly an out-of-wedlock child, which may be the real
0: reason she was ostracized. Or, the witch was captured and hanged from an oak tree in the center of the cemetery, by the neck, until she was dead. Afterwards being cut down and buried somewhere conveniently close by, since the cemetery was right there.
1: Or, she was burned at the stake, and then hanged, buried, banished, and or otherwise asked to leave the premises. In a degrading way.
0: <laughs> this of course made her feel a little put out. Put put out. Miffed. Angry. She was uh, angry, all I see, right. Oh, okay. I see, yes. All right. I see where you're getting at. It's hard to say what year all of that may or may not have happened, but Parashane's prosperity and fortunes took a noted dip just ten years after it was founded, when it was hit with diphtheria. Otherwise known horrifically. As the children's plague. Oh, yes. Well, diphtheria
1: is unkind, particularly to kids. And it's also unkind to me because it's diphtheria, not diphtheria, as we've been sometimes saying. So I've been saying it wrong... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my whole life, I've heard it kind of both ways in that vague way that you don't. You I only one. heard
0: it the dip way. I've been saying it wrong my whole life, and I would have even typed it wrong into our outline if we didn't have spell check. I was like, "Why is this giving me a problem?" And it's like, yeah. "Oh, there's an H." And then I immediately, <laughs> when we were working on putting this outline yeah. together, I told Forrest, "I was like, this is so weird. There's a silent H in dip theory."
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not
0: silent. It's uh, not silent because yeah. then I was like, "But my last name is Philbrook. That's a ph. It makes a foot ph- sound." And then I look it up uh-huh. and it's like,
1: oh, I'm an idiot. Diphtheria. Yeah, yeah well, right. no, so it's, anyway. just, it's easier to say with a P. So that's what sticks. There's yeah. a, It's not a spoonerism, but there is a term for that where it's the easier thing to say oh, right. is what people stick I'm with. I'm sure we're so. gonna get some emails now or some tweets about that. Anyway, yeah. all, all
0: our medical people probably already knew that, but hopefully some of the rest of you learned something new tonight. I know I did.
1: <laughs> well, very well. Here we go. Well, anyway, diphtheria strikes Perishiany in 1893. We couldn't find data online regarding 1893 statistics for diphtheria, but new astonishing research corps member Quade Joslin found some amazing Michigan annual state board of health reports online for 1895. So thank you, Quade. And you can get a real sense of what statistics were like at the time, keeping in mind that a lot of deaths probably went undiagnosed or
0: unrecorded. For example, in 1895, 3,433 people in Michigan, the entire state, were documented to have come down with diphtheria which killed about a quarter to a fifth of all it infected. But statistics also show that the highest mortality rate was among kids from zero to 10 years old, which is brutal.
1: Right, and the very old. So again, it's one of those diseases that really affects the very young and the very old who have uh, undeveloped immune systems or weakened. Yes. But basically it's a lot of disease of the throat where you get a, a patchy gray, like a scab almost, and it becomes very painful to swallow. You get a very hoarse cough. So sometimes it's called the disease, or you get a very swollen neck, what they call bull neck. Mm. So yeah, it's very uncomfortable, very painful, and, uh, and a bad way to go. In Parashaney Cemetery, there's one gravestone, which we have a picture of from this outbreak that shows a single family, the Barber family, in December of 1893, and they lost nine-year-old daughter Hattie on the 12th, eight-year-old Ray on the 26th, and six-year-old Roy on the 29th, all within 17 days.
0: Yeah. So I I can't even imagine. Unfortunately, that was only the beginning. After the first severe outbreak, by three years later in 1896, the town's population dropped dramatically from 1,500 residents to just 55, just three years after the first outbreak. And it's hard to say exactly why. There were many, many deaths to be sure, but there are only 90 plots in the Parashany Cemetery. Many families likely moved away after the first outbreak, and history can point to several who relocated to the neighboring towns of Grayling and Roscommon, which Parashany is nearly exactly halfway between, Grayling being to the north and Roscommon being to the south. So 55 people are living there in 1896,
1: And 1897, just four years later, the town was hit again by either diphtheria or cholera or scarlet fever. We've heard all those. And many more of the townsfolk died. When you're starting with 55 people, it doesn't take much to decimate the population. By 1901, Parashiany was down to just 25 people and clearly circling the drain. 11 years later, in 1912, the post office closed. And five years
0: after that, in 1917, there were only 18 people living there. On May 7th, 1917, the land was sold off at a public auction, and the cemetery currently is owned by the Beaver Creek Township and maintained by them, along with, it seems, one gentleman who still lives nearby and picks up the trash and trinkets people leave on the few remaining headstones that haven't been destroyed by time or, more significantly, by vandals. So this addresses the plague of the witch's curse of Parashiany but what about the fire? Well, some local legends say that the residents of Grayling eventually took it upon themselves to burn what was left of Parashany to the ground to protect themselves from the diseases that had ravaged the community. Yes,
1: cleansing by fire. Eventually, the only people left behind in the town of Parashany are dead and buried in the cemetery, possibly with a very witch that brought their town
0: to its knees and cursed them to die. So traffic to our new website has shot up since we moved it over to Squarespace. Well, it's pretty elegant and sophisticated now. Unlike us. Hey, speak for yourself. Well, one thing I've noticed is how much easier it is to manage on the back end whenever we need to publish a page for a new episode or make some changes. Yeah,
1: that is true because I've been doing a lot more work on the postings and I've noticed that a lot of it is drag and drop, which makes it really intuitive and a lot of fun and it really speeds up the process.
0: Not including the time that you spend rewriting the copy over and over
1: (laughs) Hey, that writing is out there forever, man. Writing to me is writing, so I can't help it if I'm a perfectionist. It's just my gift. It's your curse. (laughs) Well, that that is true.
0: Well, I'm a design junkie, and while I'd love for us to have some absurd budget laying around in a drawer to pay somebody to build a dazzling page with lasers and holograms. (laughs) Lasers? Yeah. I got to be honest, though. Squarespace's award-winning designs are just gorgeous right out of the box. And therefore has saved you from spending our hard-earned money having exhibit pimp our website. Well, (laughs) it's a valid point. Anyway, the main thing is, our show has grown a lot, and it was time for us to make our next move with Squarespace. And it turned out to be the perfect fit for us, allowing us to easily create a beautiful site with their all-in-one platform, which requires no installations, upgrades, or patches ever. The other thing that's great is that if
1: you're just getting started and have a name in mind for your site, their unique domain experience is fully
0: transparent and simple to set up. It's not just for creatives either. Although there's no shortage of musicians, designers, and artists on there, it's also great for businesses, restaurants, or even just individuals who want their own online destination. Yeah, pretty much anything you can think of. So make your next move with a beautiful website
1: from Squarespace. That's right. Make your next move with Squarespace now. Use our offer code LEGENDS for 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That offer code again is LEGENDS, L-E-G-E-N-D-S. I think people can spell legends, man. Hey, we've both been saying diphtheria wrong for decades, so I figured, you know, better safe than sorry. Squarespace, make your next move.
2: I'm Allison, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
0: All right, so this story, it's pretty simple, and it's kind of short, but it it really has everything. It has all the elements of a great legend. Well, if you look at some of the other stories about haunted
1: cemeteries, not just in Michigan, which also has a few great ones, but there's a lot of the similar elements. So you start to see things lining up, which makes a great related story throughout the ages of everything about a place that's haunted. To start off with, you have a great backstory of hope. So a lot of prosperity a lot of uh, new beginnings and people starting their lives out new and fresh. And then it's followed by tragedy. Yeah. And then tragedy strikes and there's a large scale suffering and pestilence and you have a disease that wipes out a lot of the town. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. So what that does though is get those that are living there or the ones that are hearing the story later understanding why people of the time might start to think that something's wrong here. Is it God? Are we being punished? Or is there an evil influence? So yes, all this pestilence and misery and suffering, this place has seen a lot of death and intense human emotion and diseases when they come through like diphtheria and cholera, when they come in epidemic waves like that,
0: you start to want to blame something or someone. Yeah, and that's something interesting that Tess had pointed out in the research core when we were working on this show about, you know, whether or not the idea of the witch was scapegoated or some other idea that came up, whether or not it was it was real or not. But it's hard when you're faced with that kind of death and destruction on a repeated basis if you – it's hard to say, oh, well, this is just a scientific problem. You you look for, you <laughs> right. look for a place it's, to put the blame. No, there's got to be a reason you can understand,
1: that you can point to and blame. And people do that to this day with the problems and tragedies they face. There's got to be a reason, not just... It's just a random science thing, and, you, you know, it just happens. There's unsanitary conditions. That's why these things happen. You, It's better to find somebody that you can point the finger at. Yeah, good point. So that, again, that's no uh, a witch thing. <laughs> no, but it's a little bit like a Stephen King story where he has a group of people, they all start turning on each other. Not that this happened here, but what I'm saying is, like when you have people undergoing a lot of stress and a lot of misery, even on a spiritual level, I believe that imprints something into the land itself. So you have a good foundation now for a story along with fire and destruction and rumors of people starting fires, burning down buildings to cleanse the area, which that's the pitchfork part where you're chasing the monster away. Yeah. So all these elements are now you're starting to get a pretty good legend going here. And the top and it off, it's the the disappearance. The town virtually disappears over a decade or two. And the only thing that's left, as they say, is a strange grassy moss that grows, but nothing else grows very well. Yeah. So who knows if that's true. They do say that there's a lot of grassy green moss there. Yeah. uh, At least in the cemetery part. And it's still in a clearing. So, you know, who knows? That might be a, a natural biological process, but it adds to the story. But to top it all off, you need now a curse, a curse from a witch or something supernatural, like some element of evil something that is causing this trouble that you again you have to try and burn out yeah so you have somebody who is on the outskirts of society or at least seems a little odd or off that's a woman that uh, has not been married and my goodness she's already 35 well she's a witch yeah (laughs) there's something wrong with her why isn't she married off having kids already or it just could be somebody who's just more you know, socially awkward and they don't
0: mix well, well, there's something wrong with you. Well, and the other way that you get to be a witch is if you are pregnant and you're having a child out of wedlock. Ah, shameful. Well, also it's far more convenient for whoever the father is to label the woman a witch and have her sent out of town then (laughs) confess to adultery or, you know, having relations out of wedlock or anything like that. Exactly. Oh, she's a witch. (laughs) Nope, it's not my kid. She has to leave. (laughs) She's going to have to be banished. And to your point earlier, which I think is really interesting, when you were talking about how people do this to this day in terms of vilifying a person or trying to come up with a reason for something, it really does happen. You see it today in all walks of life, whether it's in a small time setting with your office or in a microcosmic setting, but also you see it in the macrocosm. Like if you look at politics, for example, politicians are often vilified. I'm not speaking in code here. This is not, I'm not speaking in code about the president. We steer clear of politics on the show as much as we can. But even the last several presidencies, you can see where the presidents by whatever party opposes them have been labeled as... Pariah, yeah. the antichrist, the right. village idiot, whatever. It's like there's all this thing. It's like, oh, I've got to put a label on it because that's the only thing that can explain yeah. what's going on here. And you can see how that works. And by the same token, you can see it in, in your classroom or in your group of people that you work with. It's like Oh well, you know, you know, Todd's a little weird. You know? <laughs> well, that's I, uh, something I, what the, I can't I'm not going to do. It. Yeah, it's somebody, something strange uh, about him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Especially during these times where there's a lot of rumor going around, not a lot of great information. And this is late in the era. We're not talking about the Middle Ages here where that was rampant, of course. You know, the witch trials happened up until about uh the turn Of the 19th century so about 1800 there was a lot of killings like maybe hundreds of thousands of innocent women were put to death and i think of the monty python thing where it's like you know they they kind of dunk you underwater just from an accusation and if you did happen to drown well, you were innocent, but sorry. Yeah. It yeah. Was, you know, but if you floated and flew away, well, obviously she's well, it's a witch. not
0: just Monty Python. That's how it really went down. Yeah, right? no, no, it was. Yeah. yeah, they
1: would dunk you on a pole, and I believe at Mackinac Island, they. If you died, did that proved that.
0: you were just a simple mortal. You were innocent, yes. Yeah, and innocent. Yeah, they were yeah. just mistaken. So yeah.
1: <laughs> sorry about that mistaken identity thing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, they were hoping you would just kind of burst into flame, turn into a bat, and fly away. So that obviously did not happen, but people could be banished or you were
0: ostracized from society. So they were doing that in Montana... If you commit a crime and you, you maybe it wasn't quite enough to hang you, they might banish you. And if it was the winner, you probably were better off being hanged, right. honestly, well, they sent out <laughs> to the woods. The, no, they stopped
1: that. You. Yeah, after the first case, the, the first guy came back cold and hungry. I forget his name right now. Yeah, they let him like, back like, into oh, town. Well, that wasn't real smart because, I mean, you felt, that's the thing. In that story anyway, people felt bad immediately. It's like, let's string him up. And then the next day, like, yeah, you know what? We can't string him be the only one being strung up. So yeah. let them all go. Yeah. So again, the people were flip-flopping. But they realize that banishment, yeah, it's still better than lynching. But in the winter time, not great because where are you going to go? Yeah, so,
0: flip-flopping. Uh, by the way, another yes. political label.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> so people are very fickle; they're very capricious and changing their minds with whatever. But in this case, the story, the kernel of it is that you have somebody who's been wronged by the town society, who is now going to curse it with pestilence. And fire. Yeah. And they're seeing a bit of that. So they're thinking this is pretty real. There's another little bit here, a nugget that a little bit of icing on the cake. A little bit of icing on the cake is that the town may or may not have been intentionally or unintentionally built over a Native American burial
0: ground. Yeah. Which, That's we going back to poltergeist.
1: <laughs> well, here's my thing. Just Actually, no, that was a regular
0: cemetery, wasn't it?
1: Well, that was, but I think that there was some Native American element in there. Yeah. My point is, even if you don't believe in that, yeah. I'd take the insurance and don't build anything on a known burial ground, no matter who's on there. No. There's that park, Bad Estes idea. Park in Denver.
0: Yes. Uh, Not far from my, where my dad lives. In.
1: Exactly. Famously haunted. Even during the day, people see strange things walking around. Very haunted place because that was a site of a mass burial where the unscrupulous caretakers were getting paid, I think, by the box. So they were kind of chopping people up posthumously and fitting them into smaller boxes because it was cheaper and going through their possessions. So again a lot of bad mojo yeah but you know what
0: there's a great ultimate frisbee game there every saturday <laughs> is there really it's <laughs> no okay it's a wide open space all i know <laughs> yeah. is that
1: no i read about it and it's haunted but also ringed by houses it's in a very suburban area right yeah so this place again what's better about the Parashaney story is that it's out in the middle of nowhere that kind of adds to the spookiness and especially if you go visiting today these days, like I said, be, earlier, it said, it's hard to find, but people do go visiting, and yeah. we'll have a few clips of people actually going on a self-guided tour. And you could kind of see what's there. It's not, there's not much there now, but at the time, it seemed to have a lot of promise, and then it took a bad turn. Yeah. And again, in a short span of time and, and just a couple of decades. So, and yeah, something's and there's, going on.
0: Yeah, and there's, and there's not a whole lot left today. There's virtually no trace of the town left. The cemetery remains pretty barren, except for a few broken headstones, and what's left of the area remains isolated, hard to get to, and haunted, with stories abounding of the ghosts of the children who died in the two epidemics. Ah, Now you can get to it, it's not easy. There's just a two-track trail of sorts and you need the GPS coordinates and a car with good ground clearance like a, a Jeep or. Or maybe a Land Rover, or I don't know if you can. You can take a stock Jeep <laughs> right. and put maybe like a three-inch lift kit on it. I and see some 30, 35s or thirty-seven. I don't know if you'd need 37s <laughs>
1: You can have recommendations no, on the
0: on the website. Yeah, or, I don't think you'd need lockers.
1: Okay. I'm sorry, I'm getting off. Yeah, of no, I thought I thought you were going to go off in a clinic here. Yeah, yeah, yeah but okay. uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, no. What it is is don't take your parents' Buick LeBaron uh, no. out to go see it. You're going to no. get
0: high-centered and get stuck there again. <laughs> yeah, because you, you don't. You do place have, to get stuck. Exactly. You don't have the proper breakover angle for, or you know the angle approach and angle depart i'm sorry yeah please people are super bored
1: yeah no except for the car people yeah even them well no. look (laughs) ouch the thing is it's a real place you can actually visit it it had a real history at a beginning and real people died there and it all went away in a very short amount of time so it did have history as short-lived as it was that saw also a lot of misery so it's a very strange tale of a town that's not all like, well, you know what? It's it's like, well, there's they found gold in the town next door, so everybody packed up and put their shops up there. Although Bannock is supposedly haunted as well, yeah. uh, some parts of it. But, oh, I was going to say this about uh, the Native American campground or burial grounds there, is that, yeah, you might think that's a cliche, but like I say about cliches, that you wouldn't get it if it didn't have some, some truth to it and people weren't repeating it all the time. So there does seem to be... If you believe in any of this kind of a hoodoo voodoo kind of mumbo jumbo spookiness here that things do seem to emanate from places that have a lot of sacredness to it. So yes, the Indian burial ground, the Native American ceremonial burial grounds there, that's not a great start for this town. and it just it just adds to the whole thing. And so nowadays people do see strange things there. Yeah, they hear strange things. Strange things happen to their cars. They see orbs, all
0: kinds of uh, weirdness. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. We also wanted to say, just while we are talking about it, when we talk about these kinds of places in general on our show, we do not encourage our listeners to go there, especially in the case of disrespecting the property and that sort of thing. We wouldn't expect that any of you guys would do that, but we know that that is a lot of what's happened to Paris Cheney Cemetery, which is sad because a lot of the gravestones that people will tell you were there, even in the 70s, have been destroyed, smashed with hammers. And... No, yeah, people taking
1: sledgehammers, bringing stuff with them because, again, no one's out there really to monitor you so you can drink your 12-pack and go nuts on yeah. the place. And people take out their frustrations. And it's a kind of a strange, troubled person that wants to smash up some headstones.
0: Well, I, yeah. Do you remember our episode, uh, Choose Your Own Adventure? When I my, do. Yeah, my buddy David had to witness an unhinged schoolmate beating up a corpse at Hart Island in yeah. New York. That episode is not for the faint of heart,
1: by the way. <laughs> not for the faint of heart. Island. Yeah. You know, it, the idea, though, is that people do this because it happens everywhere. And... For whatever reason it's like a thing unto itself but very disturbing but some people feel compelled or empowered by desecrating graves you know like being able to kick somebody when they're down and they can't fight back
0: okay let's talk a little bit about the things that might have been the actual origin some some real causes yeah Yeah. some real causes as we deconstruct we get a little bit into some theories on what might have brought about the plagues for example, besides a witch cursing. (laughs) Yeah, the the supernatural. like, I'm going to get you. Well, here's one thing about it. Perishini did not have a great water supply for right, one thing. Right. And that's a huge issue. That seems like such a simple idea, but that's an issue for putting out fires. That's an oh, issue yeah. for hygiene well, in you, a you, major way.
1: Exactly, yeah. so most towns when they're founded, they start off near a water source and it's a river or you know at least a creek or a, a creek depending on where you're from the country, <laughs> how you say it, yeah. a stream something, uh, springs. Yeah. You know, you need a source of fresh water. And I'm sure that there's probably wells because you can always sink a well generally in a lot of places in the U.S. Yes. Because I can't imagine that all of their water supply is being trained in. No. You know, on the on the train. But even the train itself, even the old steam locomotives, they need water. That's the old water tower, the jerk water town. You ever heard that expression? That's where that comes from. So... What we're saying here, though, is that there's no major fresh water supply or way of getting it distributed through the town or the village. It's a tiny town.
0: Yes, very small. We have maps of it posted in our images, which you can see, and and also maps of the cemetery plots. Exactly. So,
1: and again, back in those days, there wasn't a lot of great hygiene. This is not real late into the 19th century, but... People aren't enjoying a bath every day.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you know uh, Marie, who is one of our most active members in the Astonishing Research Corps, is convinced that rats brought diphtheria into the area. <laughs> well, she's, she's a little hung up on rats. No, she yeah. was talking about these rats. It actually is interesting. She cites this story from the Wichita Beacon. This was published on July 13th, 1887. Uh, check the story out. Headline, Killed by Rats detroit michigan july 13 the remains of a human being by the way if you're listening at night this next section might not be the best part to listen to right right before bed <laughs> you might want to turn this off and but be sure come to back fall- to it yeah, tomorrow I when see. you're on the train or oh, in your car right at the pet yeah. store yeah yeah that's, that's your warning you might want to fall asleep watching willard yeah oh you know, yeah either version good call here yeah. we go killed by rats Detroit, Michigan, July 13th, 1887. The remains of a human being, wholly unrecognizable, were found Sunday on the road between Parashaney and Fletcher. While the inquest was being held, a young man named Davis, who had been drawn by curiosity to pay a second visit to the spot where the corpse was found, dashed among the jurors with badly tattered clothing and a bloody club and the solution of the mystery. The unknown man had been killed by field rats, The young man had himself been attacked by them and had to fight for his life. When he approached the spot, he said the vicious hordes sprang upon him from all sides, and although he killed many of them, it seemed only to whet the courage of the survivors. He was obliged to make a run for it and had been followed almost to the inquest, some of his assailants clinging to him and biting him cruelly. (laughs) Okay. All right, so... That's quite a story. Not sure what's going on there. Uh, We've actually got it on good authority that rats don't usually attack people, especially people who are awake. But we do have a study done from 1974 to 1996 and published in 1999 in Pediatric Digest by Randall Hirshhorn and Robert Hodge. And it says the following. Here's the abstract for the study. I just want to read this first because sometimes I'm amazed at the kinds of studies that happen. Yes. Everything you can imagine. Objective. This study sought to assess the occurrence of rat bites within an urban population and examine the demographic characteristics to determine whether risk factors can be identified. Methods, an observational epidemiologic study was used to collect rat bite data from 1974 to 1996 and plot the incidence of rat bites and factors relating to the characteristics of the victim, circumstances of the bite, and the environmental conditions present at the time and the location of the bite. Comparison between the first 10 years and the last 12 years was made to gauge changes in the incidence of rat bites. Results. A total of 622 rat bite cases were confirmed with incidents gradually decreasing each year. Rat bites primarily affected children five years of age and younger. The majority of bites were inflicted on the face and hands and occurred in the bedroom between midnight and 8 a.m. Physical conditions of the structure in which the bite occurred and adjoining structures were significant factors in rat bite incidents. Most bites occurred in the warmer months. The majority of the cases occurred between midnight and and six A.M., eighty three percent of them. All right. So just don't go to sleep. Yeah, don't go to sleep. <laughs> were you trying to go to sleep right now? Uh, the area of the <laughs> body <folks> are, yeah. <laughs> the area of the body where rat bites occurred was analyzed. Data indicate that forty eight point three percent of the victims were bitten on the hand. were bitten on the head, Mm. 15% on the foot, and 9% on the leg. The 1985 through 97 data substantiate the fact that the areas most commonly bitten are still the victim's hands and head. The phenomenon of why certain areas of the body are bitten more or less often than are other areas can be explained by considering another victim-related variable, activity when bitten. The vast majority of victims, 86% of those whose activity was reported, were asleep when bitten. The location and room where the bite occurred also have a bearing on where and when the victim received a bite. The data show that 83% of the victims were at home when they were bitten. Not surprisingly, 84% were indoors at the time, and 60% were in the bedroom of their residence when bitten. That's not where you are right now, is it? I hope not. Point here is. Oh, you're talking to our listeners. Yeah, I'm talking no, to the listening right here next. Uh, to you. Yes, yeah, you're, okay. right there, right. right. So that's all I'm taking from that report. If you want to read the entire thing, we have a link to it. It's fabulous. <laughs> Don't know why you would, late unless, night reading unless you're Marie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Marie, you've got to find that. I'm the one that tracked that down. It was referenced in an article that our researchers found, and then uh, that was a dead link. So I went to the pediatric journal and Ah, continued to search for it until i found it very good sir really wanted to read it but anyway the point here is rats don't seem to attack people who are awake and mobile no
1: and i also read at least with diphtheria that there's no proof that it's zoonotic meaning that diphtheria may or may not be transmitted by animals right there's some people who think it might be but there's no studies to prove or data yet and
0: studies done that proves the link. Well, yeah, and so here's what I think about this story in the Wichita Beacon, yes, yeah. in 1887. I think the story is either made up or <laughs> well, our hero of the story, or should I say victim, yeah. Yeah. was passed out or drunk oh, or had yeah. under the influence, in which case I can see the rats participating in the consumption of him. I still don't know why the other guy came running into the courtroom, apparently with rats still attached to him, <laughs> and a bat. Oh, Unless again. he killed the first guy and then tried to make it look like a rat Ooh, attack. Ooh, rat attack. Yeah. Rat so that's attack. That's always a good right. excuse. Name of my I, new band. Yeah, right. So, what <laughs> you're saying,
1: well, Rat, R A T T, remember them? Yeah, yeah of course okay, I do. Okay, okay, right, round first. and round. Exactly. So, the idea, okay, though, is sorry. that rats don't seem to Willard like attack all I think even Debbie said that she knows people that raise, you know, had pets and had a bunch of them. And you
0: know,
2: it's
1: not something they would do. No, exactly. Totally out of character. Not even really if Crispin thing. Glover was there. <laughs> even Like they would have to be so hungry. And I think they would like maybe nibble at you for a good couple of weeks. Father's Day is right around the corner. I don't know if a month away
0: is really right around the... (laughs) You know what I mean. Besides, a month feels like 10 minutes to me these days. Well, I hear you on that. If your life is moving too slow, start a podcast, combine (laughs) that with having a kid, blend, and we'll see you in 20 years. (laughs) Well, so as I was saying, Father's Day is right around the corner. All right. Let me get down to business here. Mm -hmm. Does your dad have a beard? Is it unruly? Are you embarrassed to be seen with him in public? This Father's Day, bring him forth from the dark ages of overpriced drugstore razors that have gotten so absurdly expensive they have to be kept in display cases resembling the bowels of Fort Knox. <laughs> These are questions from your
1: son, aren't they? Yeah. Well, anyway, help your dad break the shackles of that absurdity by signing him up at Harrys.com, where company founders Jeff and Andy... Wait, there's there's no Harry? No, you what? it's named after our president. Pre- President Harry? Oh, my God. Did you make it out of elementary oh, school? Oh, Truman. Truman yes. got it. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. Go, go on. All right. Well, anyway, company founders Jeff and Andy were fed up with getting ripped off by a certain unnamed giant razor company that has been relentlessly
0: increasing prices at the expense of its customers and laughing all the way to the bank. They knew there was only one way to ensure quality and fair prices for you shavers out there. Shavers? We people that need to shave. I don't know. Anyway, they bought their own blade they they bought their own blade factory. Oh yeah. No, it's in Germany, home of Porsche. Ooh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So they bought their own blade factory, and by taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price of their drugstore competitors. Just two dollars per blade versus four dollars or more at the drugstore. Harry's is so confident that you or your dad Mm -hmm. will love their blades. They're gonna let you or your dad, try their trial set for free. You just cover the $3 for shipping. Harry's free trial set comes with
1: a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip
0: and trimmer blade, and a rich lathering shave gel, as well as a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for you or your dad for free just for trying them out.
1: Stop messing around with overpriced blades and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free
0: trial offer. Again, it's a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash ALP right now. Do it for
1: dad. That's harrys.com slash ALP.
3: Hi, I'm Lincoln Ashley, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
0: All right, so you have to ask yourself, is all of this stuff just born from the lore surrounding the cemetery at Parashany, because it's not just about the town, it's about the cemetery. The cemetery is the only thing left behind, and it's what people still talk about and what people visit, because there's nothing really to talk about with regard to everything else, because it's gone. Well, again, a
1: lot of the buildings had burnt down. The great part of the story is that people, you know, fearing disease and pestilence and a curse decided to cleanse the area. Was it like that movie, 1408, where it just says, burn me, the room itself? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's how you cleanse things with fire. That the townsfolk and neighboring townsfolk's like, we don't want any of that kind of evil around here. So they burn it all to the ground to get rid of it. Supposedly. Supposedly, but... Corroborate. (laughs) Exactly. It's uncorroborated. uh, It's uncorroborated, supposedly. People are cringing. The worst story... Well, I'm cringing. The worst story is that, well, sparks from the sawmill started a fire, and because the water sources were so poor and not connected, a lot of fires just burnt down. Yeah. Because all I could do is throw water on it or have a bucket brigade or maybe even a mobile pumper, but that doesn't do much because sawdust is very explosive. Right. Or just sit down and draw a circle in the dirt. Well, yeah. <laughs> think about moving. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to the lovely areas of Grayling or Ross, Ross Commons. So... That's more likely what happened. There sparks from the sawmills or some kind of industrial fire spread, and they, at some point, couldn't save a lot of the buildings, and they just burnt down. Yeah. And after that happens, for a decade or two, all you're left with are just the foundations, and eventually those get grown over. Yeah. So really, all you have, again, talking about what's left is that, you know, stone survives you know, for centuries, except when you have well, yeah, and teenagers busting them up with sledgehammers. But in this case, yeah, you still have a few headstones left
0: over. Well, and also the story about the fire is we couldn't find anything on it. The Ark couldn't find anything documenting. There was sawmill fire, possibly, yes, right. but there was nothing documenting the idea willful of... Arson, yeah, willful arson? Yeah, willful arson. yeah. And I also read in uh, somewhere, now I can't remember, and forgive me for not being able to cite the source on this, but that the environment in general and the materials that they were using to build back then were at odds with each other. Yeah. It's just not something, fire or no fire, it's just not going to be around very long.
1: No, these things happen nowadays. There's fires all over town, industrial fires. Yeah, but I'm talking about actually. bio, I'm talking about
0: the earth just reclaiming the structures. Ah, yeah. And well, just time right. and humidity. No, no, it's, and, you'd be you know. surprised
1: how fast things get grown over and forgotten. They get swallowed up. We talk about that with buried treasure. How right. many of these stories... Guys come back, even with a crudely drawn map, and can't find their own treasures again. Yeah. Henry Plummer's treasure, gone forever in the hills of Montana. So, no. in this case, though, the town, being out in the middle of nowhere to begin with, it just, you know, the trees and the grasses swallow it back up. They cleared the trees out of the area of the cemetery, but that's still clear. So there's a clearing there. As you can see from the photos we'll have and some of the videos where guys have taken... Um, they're there respectfully just poking around. There's a couple of guys with a metal detector. Some guys are there just taking photographs. But it shows you what it looks like. And it's not remarkable. It's unremarkable. Yeah. So, But really, that's the only kind of identifying factor is that there's kind of a clear open patch where the cemetery is. And that was
0: uh, a few miles, I think, south of the original town site. Yeah, if you know where to look on Google Earth, you can... You can pick you can out it, the sure. cemetery, yeah. If you go straight down the train tracks from where it is, you can find the clearing where the cemetery is. You can still see some of the gravestones on the satellite view. And
1: exactly. Well, this is not the only, of course, haunted cemetery story in Michigan, and I'm sure every state has their own. I know from my own state, and, and even here in California, there's plenty of them. Pennsylvania, I'm sure, you know, Frenchtown, some of yeah. the old, uh, lots of hauntings.
2: Well, that's and, New uh, Jersey,
1: but... Oh, I'm sorry, it's across the river. Right yes. across but the I mean, river, yeah. In Bucks County, though, in Pennsylvania, yes. there's a lot of spooky woods stories. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah,
0: there's Bigfoot stories, actually. Oh, there he goes, Bucks yeah. See, and UFOs. Right. It's well, a, there's, there's been a few
1: flaps. I think it's probably hoaxed, As John Ventray would say, yeah. Exactly. But to point out, I found another instance here in a book called Weird Michigan, And this one's about the Silverbrook witch. And this comes from the town of Niles in Michigan, but there's a beautiful old cemetery and it has a wrought iron archway gate Mm. and it's called Silverbrook. And listen to this, a witch is said to be buried there, although the location of her grave is unknown. If you happen to be there at the right hour of the night, the story goes, her screams reverberate through the chapel at the center of the cemetery. Mm. So again, vague witch. Possibly tied with that. Don't yeah. know where she's buried. Not really sure, but she's there. People have heard screams and uh, there you go. And so they, you know,
0: it's, it's the foundation of a good haunting. Yes. Which may just be a lady who didn't have a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something, yeah, I mean. It's not you know, really fair, is uh, <laughs> it?
1: Uh, well, not if you get ganged up on, but what's more interesting and, and I guess, or more thin in this case, is that if you really can't find a witch or even anybody yeah, that the story points to. It's just, that's
0: the story. They go with it. Yeah, that's true. It's almost nearly
1: impossible to track
0: down. Well, it's funny you should mention that book, or maybe it's not a coincidence. <laughs> you because not do looking
1: at it. Yes. yes,
0: it is actually written by a former guest of the show, Linda Godfrey, whom we had on about her book, Monsters Among Us, which we aired shortly after the Skinwalker series. Linda is somewhat of an expert on werewolves and dogmen and creatures like the Beast of Bray Road in Wisconsin, mm. but she's also done a lot of research on the paranormal in general. And obviously, having written Weird Michigan, right? It's a, she it's a series of a books. ton of research, yeah. yeah, on Michigan for this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, Mark Moran and Mark Skorman have this series of books, Weird whatever, but this one's Weird Michigan. And Linda has written a lot of the um, articles in here with uh, contributions from people who are local residents in in these various Michigan towns, but she traveled extensively throughout the state yes, uh, to gather these stories. It's a lot of fun. It's great little coffee book table reading and little excerpts of uh, good, uh, creepy stories here and just some fun things too. Some folk art stuff that's just kind of, that's weird about Michigan and fun.
0: Yeah. And we we figured since we knew her, why don't we call her up and see if if she'd come on the show and maybe lend us a little bit of insight and she agreed to come back on the show so here's a short clip of one of the things that she had to say about another haunted cemetery in michigan
2: there's tecumseh which is one of my favorite towns in michigan for its historic little buildings has a brookside cemetery and there is this concrete chair like looks like a easy chair or a library sort of chair sitting there. The cemetery goes back to 1853 itself. And this is known as the witch's chair. And on the back of the chair, you can find the name engraved of a very prominent early family. And supposedly, the local legend is that one of the women in that family was a, a witch or strange or something like that. That was the quote. And there's a nearby Stacy mansion, which also has a very colorful background. It was lived in by a judge and his wife. And they had um, a daughter who was a spinster. And every time somebody got whooping cough or somebody's farm animal died, they would blame it on Luana because there was a certain time in our history where spinsters, spinsters were very likely to be thought of as witches. And so it may be. The reason that uh, this became called the Witch's Chair it doesn't mean that Luana was a witch, but um, that was the legend that developed.
1: Right, so that's a fascinating story. Well, there's some obvious similarities to our Parashaney story. Yeah. But this is a good one because it does have an object that's still there. It's a very well-kept cemetery there in Tecumseh. But the chair is, it kind of looks, I don't know, Greco-Roman of sorts. Yeah, it, we have a, a picture of it. A lot of people will build concrete benches so you can sit and reflect and talk to your loved ones and this one is just kind of like a single chair for a person and what she meant is that on the back of the chair as you're facing it yeah, the not,
0: the behind, yeah not the back behind but the back yeah. of the it, upright which,
1: back of the chair facing which, which you which might make it a little uncomfortable on your back maybe the raised letters but, yeah. it's, but it's the family name of Stacy so well if you're a vapor it's not such a big deal I guess, if you're a ghost i guess yeah it's, it's all fine well this lawyer first name was consider or Considere, i guess alfonso stacy and his wife mary and in the 1850s, he was a very prominent and powerful businessman in the area. And he ran for Congress unsuccessfully, but he was also the postmaster. So he was a known figure around town and I'm guessing popular. And the only deal with his daughter is that she didn't get married and just work for her dad at the post office. right? So she just helped him. I guess she was a bookworm, nerdy, like letters, epistles, and, and such. But never was very social. The other thing, the kind of a weird mark against the family was that the parents, Considere and Mary, were, and I'm sure the kids were members of the Universalist Church, which other mainstream denominations thought, eh, that's a little weird. These guys are suspect to begin with. And that daughter, look at that, not getting married. Look at her. She's 32. What's going on there? Yeah. So people, I love that quote, too, that Linda mentioned. Yeah, She's a witch. I don't know. Or maybe just weird. I don't know. Just strange. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Good enough, you know? Right. So when, again, when there's an outbreak, is in any case, in any school, any grade school, as you know, as a dad, it's like, oh, all the kids, you know, not so much lice anymore. But that happens. Yeah. Or, or something. Or there's... No, lice
0: a, lice still happens. It like does. <laughs> yes, it. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: exactly. It happens. Or there's strep throat. Or there's a bad cold going around or flu or anything. Well, who's the blame? It's that lady, the crazy one, who's unmarried down the street, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that kind of sticks with you. And then people start, especially back in those days, probably not so much, hopefully, during these times yeah. uh, here in the States anywhere where you're you're labeled a witch, because now I think if you are a, a white witch or into Wicca, you just kind of b- claim that. It's right. like, it's not right. a bad deal yeah. anymore. But what was interesting about Loana is that she outlived both her parents and her other four siblings, and yeah. ended up living in the house by herself for years after that. Not right. living them all. Maybe she was a witch. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So now they say that um, the locals, anyway, will say that if you ask them what's a haunted place here at Tecumseh, oh yeah, it's that house. It's right. the Stacy house, house, the mansion, the Stacy Mansion, because she can be seen and heard walking the hallways in the rooms at night. Or you can go sit in her chair at the cemetery. You can. She has a very
0: uncomfortable back.
1: Uh, yeah, you're not going to be lounging, but you can go sit in it. It doesn't look very creepy. But again, that's well, like, I don't know. I disagree. <laughs> I think it looks pretty creepy. Well, one, it's in a cemetery, that's the first thing. Plus it's concrete. So with, again, these scroll type arms. So that's a little odd, but you need to name it. So now it's called the witch's chair. And again, that name just stuck. So whether she was a witch or not, probably not. The name stuck, and that's what the cemetery is known for now.
0: Yeah, right. And so uh, the bottom line is there's no evidence that we could find anywhere or that we can tell that any researcher has found that there was ever any resident of Paris Chaney who was accused of being a witch or hanged in the cemetery or burned at the stake or cremated or there's no record of any type of a young woman being banished. Yeah. You know, But it makes, as you would say, it makes for a good story. It's a
1: weird dichotomy, I guess, because you can ask some longtime local residents who've researched it, who are curious about it, and they couldn't find anything. Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, everybody in the town just knows, like, yep, the witch is, the know, witch is there. The witch, she's buried under the big oak tree. Right. That's what they did with her. Or they burned her. And the ashes are under the oak tree or something. But basically, there was a witch, something, you know. So or they, they can tell you where her headstone is or was. Yeah, exactly. She had a headstone. That was common knowledge or part of common lore
0: then. So, yeah. and, and to this day, but again, nobody can find any evidence of it. Well, Linda had some interesting insight on this whole thing and the birth of how these women became labeled as witches as well. So we're going to play that segment real quick.
2: I think that's really been the case for many, many types of civilizations around the world, for a very long time, older women are they known, for instance, they're known as crones. You know, we have these other words to call them. Are sort of oh, looked looked on. People will look at them askance because they're not raising families. They seem to have all this time. They're something a little different, and there's something about us that just wants to call out other people who aren't in the mainstream. And when you have something happen, like your heifer suddenly falling over and dying, um, you know, you, you and you don't know anything about modern medicine, you're going to blame somebody. And there were a lot of beliefs brought over from most European countries that had sort of a, a witch culture, you know, the the Germans had their Hexeri that became the Pennsylvania Dutch, but it, it was you know, a sort of religious belief that they had and, and was very complex. Uh, it could be healing as well, but you would just find this with, when you have an older woman living alone, not married, people think, hmm, wonder why she's not married, hmm, wonder why she wore a red sash today, you know, they just become suspicious. Um, It was kind of the same way in the Middle Ages when people were accusing their neighbors of being werewolves, and they were looking for odd little signs, you know, if you had eyebrows that grew too closely together, or people would be checking the palms of your hand for fur, that kind of thing. You know, we're always looking for someone to blame these inexplicable things on. I mean, I'm no sociologist or ethnographer, but that is the sort of story that occurs over and over and over again. When you see these graves labeled the witch's chair, the whatever it is, you know, you'll find that they've been sort of singled out, really for probably no good reason that anyone could point out. It's just, that's how they were known.
1: In the end, you start to see where the legends and lore begin to develop in a story like this. A lot of it is nearly made up out of whole cloth and some of it drawn from, but wildly exaggerated from real events then once the lore starts and the location and the events begin to become legendary then you get new players on the scene and again we defer to linda and her knowledge of the area
2: there's also a story that somebody wrote to my weird michigan website that mentioned a crawford county sheriff who desecrated a grave and drove around with a human skull in his rear window so i mean people also did not used to have the proper reverence and respect Uh, for cemeteries and I can't I was gonna say that we do now but now that I think of it all the teens that drink and um, do other things in cemeteries you know that's probably an ongoing some people are more respectful than others in every generation I guess.
0: All right, so everyone is getting in the game. Who drives around with a skull in the back of the, especially uh, a I sheriff's mean, well, officer?
1: No. You know who does is the guy that your friend David felt compelled to row out to Hard Island, who beat yeah. up the corpse with the iron rod. That's yeah, that's who's doing that. <sighs> it's just very strange that somebody would do that and not feel any compunction. You know, I could see if it was a plastic skull from your science class, yeah, or some Halloween decoration. That's fun. But a skull that was not cleaned, that was just really from somebody. Oh, that reminds me. I'm not sure if I mentioned this. Somebody dug up and stole Henry Plummer's skull. Oh yeah, that's right. You remember that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was uh, it was on display at the one of it was the was a bar, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Until the bar burned down, and then yeah. it was lost. But just a weird macabre thing. And uh, I was talking to to Debbie about this over email. Debbie was, Chestnut, right? It, the most famous one that I knew of was the legend of somebody stealing Nostradamus' skull. Oh yeah, because if you drank from it. The skull bowl, the little, the little head bowl there. You would the receive head bowl. His, yes. <laughs> Is that a technical term? <laughs> the cranium. Okay. Like the cranium, okay. yes. If you drank from the cranium... Nobody uh, better be drinking from my head bowl. That's all I'm saying. No. Or just made into an ashtray or no, something. I'm going to be cremated. Well, you, yeah, but you don't have special power. See, if you drank from Nostradamus's... You don't know that. You no, know, I've been... By now, I can pretty much guess. You, you do get <laughs> things done in a pinch here with the show. I'll give you that. But uh, just foretelling the future, No. Because you would see some of the problems coming up that we have to face. Yeah. The idea, though, is that if you drank from it, the legend said that you would receive Nostradamus's visions and three of Napoleon's soldiers, who are always great to blame for everything, you know, shoot the nose off the Sphinx or some kind of hijinks back in those uh, 1830s times. Did they do Uh, that? Yeah. I mean, that's the legend is that some of Napoleon's soldiers had uh, fired a cannon at the nose of the Sphinx, but I don't believe that that's true.
0: Where do you... How do you
1: collect this information? Just don't ask. It's just, yeah, just bits of uh, crud here and there, and I can't ever forget it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, But I do get it wrong when I'm telling people onto a podcast. I'll mix stuff up. So I'm sure a lot of this is (laughs) mishmashed. Well, the story goes is that, yes, and I learned this from In Search Of... The Leonard Nimoy narrated one where these three soldiers did dig up his skull. They drank wine. Of course, they're French. So they drank wine from Nostradamus' cranium. And I'm not sure if there's a vision, a momentary one, but what happened was that it's also cursed and the soldier was hit by a stray bullet and killed immediately. Wow. But that's part of the great story. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't, uh, well, again, well, there's a curse on Shakespeare's bones, you know. Yeah, of course. Curse who messes with these bones. So here, again, curses and uh, skullduggery and (laughs) disinterment, all these are great. Sacrilege. Yeah, it's it's sacrilege in real life, but it's also great stories, which may or may not be true. Now, we could not find anything about this sheriff. uh, We could not. Yeah, the county, the Crawford County Sheriff who did it as a young boy. Not that makes it any better. But oh, he did, did it he? Oh, I thought, it was, no, not, I thought no. it was in the back of the squad car. Well, the story that I read is that he, I don't know how he got a hold of the skull, either some, uh, from hijinks with his other buddies, uh, dug up a skull, or he just found it, whatever. But he kept it. And so when he was older and a, a Crawford County sheriff used to drive around with the skull oh. on the back window shelf. So you it know, was next, in the squad next car. to the
0: Kleenex box, but it's okay because he stole it 30 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. He did or it as a kid. Or you know, kids will be kids, right? Pranks. No, I'm not. I'm no, I'm not. Again, not okay. uh, but yeah, well, you're right. We couldn't find any. The Ark could not find any evidence of that story being true. But it's not exactly the type of thing that would make the papers either. So no,
1: it might be local or lore. be recorded. Exactly. Uh, that's the thing. Is I was checking the newspaper archives there. And there's not much mention of Parashaney at all. Yeah. you think there'd be more. and It's but, vanished. Right. It's not
0: there. But, but there, I mean, maybe it's because we should be looking at Center Plains, but we looked for that too and didn't yeah. find a whole lot. That town does not have a big fingerprint, really. Exactly. That's yeah. like
1: well said, because there are these reported quotes. So what happens is that there's a quote from the current sheriff or just a few years ago, not the one that who drove around with the skull. This yeah. Is- <laughs> I'm sure this is a good sheriff. Yeah. Basically saying, though, that oh, there's always something happening over at the Parashaney Cemetery, because,
0: yeah, what we do know is that people do show up there and litter and drink. Well, in 2009, a couple of kids went out looking for it, and while they were there, apparently were shot at by a man with a shotgun. Yeah. And that's what did make the news. Yeah, because they reported it, but...
1: Uh, yeah. Like we said, a, a guy lives a couple miles away, I think, but he doesn't go and cleans up the beer cans and picks up... You know, people will leave little mementos there. Uh, stuff animals for the children's graves flowers there's people who are respectful but there's also people who just kind of mess with it and leave trash yeah well you look you can go a lot of parts of the country here and get shot at if you're disrespecting
0: somebody's property so the point here is don't go disrespecting the dead indeed well we'd like very much to thank linda godfrey for her time and coming back on the show we have some other clips of her observations that we're going to be posting for our patrons uh, at our Patreon website, which is another way you can support us if you want to. That's over at Patreon.com/slash Astonishing Legends. All one uh, word. Uh, all one word. Yeah, very good. And it has all the vowels, unlike our Twitter <laughs> That's handle. That's why I was asking. Yeah, yeah. Which we had to take vowels. I know out that of. was uh, yeah four. Lame. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but people are still finding us. So anyway, yeah, we'll have some extra clips over there of stuff that Linda contributed, but did not make it into this episode. Hey, Scott, you dig archaeology, right? You know I...
1: Oh, nice (laughs) part. I do. Nice <laughs> well, pun. Yeah, but I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> of course. Well, then I'm sure you're enjoying our latest lecture series over at The Great Courses Plus,
0: Pompeii, Daily Life in an Ancient Roman City. Yes, I definitely am. And along with that and all the other history and science subjects you and I both like, I've also been checking out their courses on genealogy, which is actually a longtime hobby of mine. And I can watch them on my smartphone while I'm letting my son play at the park or even at night on my tablet in bed. Yeah, exactly. Well, the courses are all portable
1: because you can stream their massive live library of over 8,000 videos on any device you have, but you also don't have to use your cellular minutes to do it. You can download the lectures at home on Wi-Fi and then
0: watch them offline anytime and anywhere you want. Yeah, that's how I do it. Well, let's talk a little bit about our latest course, because Pompeii has always fascinated me, ever since I was a kid, but this lecture series is telling me about the bigger picture. Like, I didn't fully realize that the eruption of Vesuvius was kind of complex, mostly because everyone just thinks it happened quickly, buried everyone in the city, and that was that, but it was really a three-day event. And while Pompeii got about 30 feet of light ash and pumice, the town of Herculaneum, eight miles away, got rapidly covered in about 60 feet of superheated magma and mud, which solidified into solid rock. So, unlike Pompeii, where you can excavate it just using shovels, Herculaneum had to be dug out with jackhammers.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, that light ash and pumice is why Pompeii is so well-preserved and why it's such an archaeological marvel, because it's maybe the best example of what daily life was like for average Romans from all walks of life. There are over 50,000 pieces of writing on the walls of Pompeii, like graffiti and political ads that were remarkably
0: well-preserved, and it really gives us an insight into their lives that you don't get anywhere else. All that graffiti and political signage, man, some things never change. (laughs) That's true. Well, if you want to see just how similar your life right now is to an ancient Romans, sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and you can watch this or any of their courses for free for a whole month. Just use our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Well, one thing that's changed for the better is that everyone nowadays has a great
1: opportunity to learn and have fun. So sign up now and get your free month because we know you're going to love
0: it. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends.
2: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Jordana. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, so when you look at the big picture of all this, maybe it's all just made up. Right, can't be haunted. It's just a town that fell on bad times. The train stopped coming there, and the railroad did shut down. By the way, I can't That's remember right. what year it was, yeah. but that contributed to the problem. The sawmill shut down, and after the disease and even fires brought on by lack of water, people just moved away. Yeah,
1: let's say by 1917, it was kind of over. But the, yeah. but the cemetery stayed behind.
0: Yeah, and there's been a lot of stories. About people experiencing things at the cemetery, right? Here's the point of it you can say that there's no witch.
1: There's no witch's body that was buried or burned or hanged or whatever. There is no witch's headstone. There might have been a headstone there that had uh, a young woman's name on it, which everybody took to think that was the witch's headstone and became a local legend and lore, or maybe not at all. Right. And it was just a sad ending to a little boom town that never went anywhere that did see its share of real misery and death and and suffering in its short life. But at the end of it, the bodies are still there. And of course, it's still a real cemetery. Yeah. And pretty much every cemetery will have some stories, I believe. And what are some of the stories that are associated with Parashaney? Well, the ones that we hear about quite a bit that keep getting repeated over and over again are orbs your favorite yes the <laughs> Strange, classic orb. although yes. I've,
0: I've come around a little bit on have you come around oh, okay. the skinwalker series. yeah that's
1: right that's the one that uh twisted yeah. your noodle there yeah <laughs> uh, but, but the one that you hear mostly and i think it has to do with the diphtheria is the laughter of little children yeah which in this sense it's like you might say you know you kids get away from my car you're getting handprints
0: on it but people have Claim to have seen handprints of children on their car. Well, you know, and this is something I talked about at our live presentation in Detroit when we were covering this story. In North Carolina, and in a lot of states across the country and places around the world, I'm sure, there's a Gravity Hill location, which I can't remember exactly where the one in North Carolina is. But this is a place where you go and you park your car at the bottom of a hill. And then you put it in neutral and you take the brake off and the car rolls up the hill. yeah. 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 There's a few of those places around the world. I'm pretty sure, I feel like I remember seeing about one in, in the UK or in France somewhere. But the one in North Carolina, supposedly if you sprinkled flour on the trunk of your car. Ah, yes. When you got to the top of the hill, there would be handprints. Because they were
1: pushing the car. They were pushing the car. Up the hill, ghostly. Well, in this instance, I think what's very interesting is that most of the children's stories about the the laughter and some of the strange things that have been seen there come mostly from one person's account. Someone named Nikki has written in to a couple of websites, and I think it's the same person. I see the spelling of the name Nikki because it's unusual, has written in to Linda's old website, which she does not maintain anymore, but it's weirdmichigan.com. And this is what I love about Nikki and her story. She'd heard the the false tellings and all these made up kind of things. And she's a Grayling resident, grew up there. Yeah. And said, you know what? I'm tired of all the witches nonsense. I'm going to set this record straight. And did some research of her own, if we can believe her, and lays down the story straight. And has seen some very strange things there. And uh, late at night, you know, one night there was giggling very near the car, giggling of children. Yeah. When she went to leave, there were tiny handprints, I think, all over the car. Maybe just the trunk and the roof, but uh, that's odd. Shouldn't be children there late at night. And has also seen kind of a ghostly figure walking around in the background, maybe of a woman, some a shrouded woman of sorts. So what happens here that's interesting about this tale is that the seminal ghost story, or ghost happenings, if you will, gets picked up by other people and told by other websites who are doing an article or mentioning parishani You'll start hearing it's like, oh, the children's handprints, that's creepy. It's like the, it's like the flower on the trunk, you know, yeah. on, the, on the back bumper. Ooh, that's a nice twist. So that's a fact that gets mentioned again and again by other people doing a story that gets cemented into this little telephone game of a legend. So I believe Nikki just just the way she outlines it it's like her count seems to kind of ring true it's your standard ghostly cemetery kind of haunting stuff nothing too outrageous you know but what's interesting is that she also says hey I grew up in Grayling we we made tons of trips there I've been there probably 200 times and out of that time only about maybe 10 times has something really strange happened yeah Which I I find humorous because it's like, that's 10 times something really creepy and weird has happened.
0: Yeah. But her point was being... And if you'd only gone those 10 times, you would have said 100% of the time. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, percentage-wise, like, yeah, it's low,
1: but still 10 strange occurrences happened. But her point really was that it's not as much as people make it out to be. And we had said this about Skinwalker Ranch and I guess uh, Greyfriars a little bit too. You're not guaranteed to have a freak out, weird sleepless night experience with scratches and
0: bruising and all that kind of stuff.
1: Most of the time, nothing happens. And that was... I, uh, by the way, right.
0: I, I forgot to tell you, we just got a picture a few weeks ago from a woman who got scratches uh. on her neck <laughs> at Grey Fires. Okay, so it does happen all the time. <laughs> I well, take that back. No, but it's interesting. We've had, since we did that show, we've probably had at least 20 people go and do the tour. That's right. And nothing has happened to any of them, but we did get this photo... Yeah. Of this woman who went a couple years ago, before we did the show, just before we did the show, not too long. Ago, right. Her sister got scratches on her neck, and we had the picture, and I've been waiting to publish it, but yeah. uh, we'll, we will do that.
1: So. Well, who on the other side of the it's veil? crazy. Who knows what frequency is like for them? They have no time there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah. on the other night, I saw Danny McBride tell it, recount a story about when he was working at the Burbank Holiday Inn. And oh, on Stephen, Stephen Colbert. Colbert. That's yeah. right. And he had heard stories from the employees there that the lounge at the very top was haunted. And so he took a job as the night manager, thought he was going to write scripts and of course was taunting, not taunting, but saying like, come out and show yourself. And for a long, long time, nothing happened until something did. Yeah. So my point being is that if you go to some place like Skinwalker Ranch, even, you know, the guys who were in charge there, the scientists, you know, that were studying strange things will say like, well, look, if you go there for a week, probably nothing's gonna happen but it's the amount of very strange things and the the degree of strangeness which makes places like that so significant. So here we have Perishani seems to be a regular cemetery, but as Nikki says it's like, well, I do get a very strange feeling I can't describe, but I get that from every cemetery.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so when and also yeah. people were reporting uh, Kind of the classic close encounter stuff too with car radio, car electrical problems, oh, that's cars an, not starting. That's also
1: part of her stories. Yeah. yeah, it's like the radio would switch channels unexpectedly.
0: Yeah, uh, the car wouldn't start for a couple of tries. You know, just again, it's now all that your gets classic back to the stuff. whole it's a little bit of skinwalker, but it also gets back to sort of the playful, mischievous aspect of this interaction. Well, they are children, yeah, in that case, yeah, right?
1: Exactly. There's the witch evil aspect, and then there's the aspect of. These kids aren't evil. They're just ghosts, I guess, if you want to chalk it up to that. But yes, plenty of... And she's not the only one. I don't want to paint it as as that she's the only one who's had a strange experience and everybody else is just borrowing her stories. But in stories that describe Parashaney as a legend, you see those pop up again and again. And along with other people's different accounts. But yeah, it's interesting to find one story kind of thread throughout.
0: On the other hand... Maybe it's just a sawmill town that went bust. Maybe the sawmill started a fire, and that worked its way into the story of Grayling coming over and burning it to the ground, and they had no water to put it out. Yeah, right. A horde of rats coming into town and <laughs> spreading disease. Yeah. A little hard who to knows? say. But yeah, who
1: knows on that? Probably not.
0: But or Maybe it was a witch who was a, really nothing more than a woman who was cast out for something as simple as having a child out of wedlock, if she even existed at all. Exactly. But if you're
1: good, if she is going to exist, the child out of wedlock spin on that story makes it more plausible. Yeah, that's true. So like, well, that's believable. People just thought she was a witch. Well, we don't know if there's a woman at all.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. And then there's the other possibility that the town just, it simply failed as some towns do. That happened actually quite a bit. Well, as we just saw with
1: uh, Henry Plummer, you know, the Bannock was the county seat. Yeah, uh, the territorial seat for a while, the hotspot, the, the thing that's happening in the whole territory, the whole region for the Idaho Territory at the time, and then for Montana. And they find gold somewhere else, Alder Gulch. People start doing more business there, hanging out there because it's hard to travel in those days. It's closer to where the action is. And then you have towns like nearby Nevada City and Virginia City, which were doing better booming business. And Bannock just dries up. Yeah. Now, unlike Perishany, a lot of the buildings are still standing, but you can see we're just, it's just the flow of, uh, the ebb and flow of people and their
0: activities. And with Parashany, it's just like, there's no reason to be here. You know? well, there's,
1: there's two other great towns we can go visit and live at.
0: Well, and it's interesting because Quaid, who was doing research for us in the ARC about other towns, other examples, and we have a link to a story that he found. He found several other towns. It's kind of the same thing happened. There was a town called Freedom. This was founded by African-Americans. It had railroad service, but no post office. And its schoolhouse, I guess now, is part of the Mackinac Heritage Village in Mackinac City, which is up in the northern part of the Mitten there. There's another town called Mintha, which was founded by peppermint grower Albert Todd. (laughs) That sounds refreshing. Yes. And uh, it's located in Van Buren County with access By the Calhavan Bicycle Trail, only a few remnants of buildings remain there. Mm. Rawsonville, this was a Wayne County hamlet, sort of like Atlantis, boomed from the 1830s to the 1860s, but disappeared underwater when Belleville Lake was flooded in 1925. And then there's another town, Glenhaven. Within the boundaries of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore is a former logging village that is currently being restored. All of this is from the Detroit Free Press 2014. But the point is, towns come and go all the time for pretty banal, mundane reasons. So you have to wonder if that's all that happened here. And then all this lore worked up around this story, maybe centered around the death, you know the focus on death from the the two outbreaks of diphtheria or possibly cholera, right? Or the fires, or just the idea of this thing being prosperous. And I mean, people have a fascination even today with exploring abandoned structures. And oh yeah, you're drawn to it. It's like the salt and sea. You go and you want to see these things that used to be populated and now they've just shifted. And and this goes all the way back to ancient civilization. I mean, archaeologists are still constantly discovering communities that usually for you know, environmental reasons right. have fallen away. Even if they had been prosperous, you know, if the river floods and or dries up, you're done at that location. Oh, no, exactly. <laughs> so. you, right, you get swallowed
1: up by the earth, as you say. You yeah. we're, we're no anthropologists or sociologists, but what we're trying to do here, especially with this story and cemetery stories in general, is, is see a pattern of different elements that kind of ring true for a lot of them that keep recurring, the elements that keep getting retold, And that's why we said Parashaney, if you believe all of it or not, or all of it turns out to pan out to be true or not. If you believe any of this at (laughs) all. If you believe any of this at all, that it has a lot of the great elements of a good ghost story or, or haunted area, especially for a cemetery.
0: Well, I guess technically it's all just hearsay and tall tales. But as we like to do, we did reach out to a local man who grew up in the area and visited Parashaney several times as a rebellious kid. His name is Eric Liddy. He grew up in Grayling, and when he was in high school, he and a bunch of friends went out to the Parashaney Cemetery because they wanted to get spooked. And as we're about to hear, they may have gotten more than they bargained for. So as you listen to this segment, keep in mind that most of the time
1: when you go out to visit a haunted place, nothing extraordinary happens. But every once in a while, something unexplainable, terrifying, and possibly
0: deadly can happen. Tell us a little bit about your story, the night that you went originally when you were younger, if you don't mind oh, recounting that.
3: I was in high school, but I was in, with the Army Reserves back then. And uh, a buddy of mine that I knew from the area got a hold of me He was like, Hey, man, we're going to go out to this old cemetery. And I'm like, Oh, cool, man. Let's go check it out. So somewhere along the way, we wound up picking up... Oh, probably 10 more people in the bed of his pickup truck. Oh, (laughs) my God. Plus another carload. Oh, geez. So I think altogether there was like 25 people all together crammed into two different vehicles. So we went out there. A few of them were drinking. It was one of the nights I wasn't. (laughs) I did later after I got back. I was like, what the hell? happened out there. But uh, we were out there probably about 10 o'clock at night, 10.30, somewhere in there. And... uh, We were just out checking out the headstones and stuff, and a lot of the girls and the women that were with us got all freaked out and scared and everything, you know. while we were out there. I mean, it was pretty creepy being out there, and someone said they spotted red eyes in the woods, and that's when everything went to hell in a handbasket. Um, Everyone started piling back into vehicles, freaking out. We bolted, there was at least probably 10 or 12 of them that actually said they saw the eye. Oh, wow. And they were following following us through the woods as we made our way back down the trail and uh, across the railroad tracks.
0: Wow. Okay. So
3: I didn't see it per se because I was too busy being clawed to death by a uh, one of our other friends who, she was on crutches, And I had to actually help load her into the back of the truck. <laughs> <laughs> and I piled in after her and she grabbed me and yanked me down to the bed of the truck. And I'm like, what up? You know, she was basically... Making me hold on to her yeah, because <laughs> she was so scared, and she was one of the people that saw it. I can't remember the names of everyone that was there that night. It's been so long ago, but it's my buddy that was driving the pickup truck, his name was Leroy. But uh, we went back probably a couple weeks later, and my buddy Leroy decided that he was going to take the top half of the uh, quote-unquote witch's tombstone. And that headstone had, uh, oh, probably a four to six inch wide and long piece of plate glass in it, rather thick. It's probably old lead glass on both sides of the headstone.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
3: And from what I understand now, I mean, we didn't know back then, we were young. What I understand now is the family had her cremated and placed inside of that headstone.
0: Okay. So there was an urn or something in behind the glass, maybe?
3: I mean, the headstone was thick enough that it could have held that. But no, they actually had placed the uh, ashes inside of the headstone itself. It was like notched out and then the glass was sealed in.
0: Oh, okay. So it was just there the ashes in. and you could see you the could ashes see ash
3: from either side, right? From okay. either side of the headstone.
0: Wow. That's crazy.
3: And uh, the glass was probably at least a quarter to a half inch thick. It was some pretty thick stuff. But uh, as the story goes, apparently, about six or seven years prior to that, two young boys were out there playing in the cemetery and uh, they were near the headstone. And this was actually, there's a book about Perry in the Grayling, or Crawford County Library, but there in Grayling, Michigan. Uh And uh, both boys were playing around the headstone and the glass exploded cutting both of them. I mean, they had minor injuries and stuff. I don't know to the extent if they needed stitches or anything, but I do remember when I saw the headstone, at least half of the glass was still there.
0: Was the implication that they were vandalizing it and that's how it broke or that it just spontaneously broke?
3: Allegedly, it spontaneously broke, whether it was they were vandalizing it or not. They were two younger kids. They were probably eight or 10 years old. Right. You know, back then, I know... 60s and 70s, people respected places of rest a lot more than they would now.
0: Yeah. So how did you guys identify, or how did it come out that that necessarily was the witch's headstone?
3: It was well known that that was the quote-unquote witch's headstone. Okay. You know, legend and rumor had it that she was burned at the stake, and they put her ashes there. The only problem I see with that is she was buried, if I remember right, late 1800s. Right. You know, her ashes were in turn there. So, yeah, that's the only problem I have with with that aspect of the story. But allegedly, uh, most of the people that we discovered, there's entire families and all these kids and stuff that were uh, buried there within days or weeks of each other.
0: Yeah, they had two diphtheria outbreaks.
3: Diphtheria and cholera.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So.
3: Yep. And of course, you know, back then, this was before I began studying medicine and everything else. We didn't know why. We just figured the entire town was cursed, but of course, back then you're looking at poor hygienic conditions and lack of running water and a lot of other things. And it just wiped entire families right out. Right. You know, unfortunately. So there's a lot of infants and young children buried in there too. Sure. It is definitely a creepy place to be at night. The first night we went, there was a full moon out there and that's kind of why we went. We were there maybe an hour and within that hour, it had clouded over, uh-huh. which was kind of creepy. We weren't expecting any crappy weather or anything.
0: Yeah, sure. So what about the story with the headstone in the car that happened later?
3: Okay. Uh, a couple weeks later, we went back. My buddy Leroy thought that it'd be funny to take the top half of the headstone because it was already crumbling and falling apart. It wasn't broken or anything. It was just falling off. So he took it and... He put it underneath the front driver's seat of the car, and it sat there for a couple months. That winter, myself, my friend Leroy, and uh, two other friends, we were on our way back to his house. We had been out somewhere or other. I can't remember where we were. And uh, it was like a freak snowstorm popped up. It wasn't supposed to snow that night or anything. And it was just like in the general vicinity where we were. And I remember, Leroy commenting, where the hell is all this snow coming from? And we were like, I don't know, because there's clear skies everywhere else. He was just dumping snow right in that area. And he lost control of the car. We were doing 55 miles an hour, and he slid off the road and hit a very large oak tree head on. The woman that was in the front seat, she was five months pregnant, four or five months pregnant. She ended up being a human airbag for Leroy.
2: Oh so my he gosh. was uninjured,
3: but she fractured her sternum and several ribs. I fractured both of my kneecaps. The guy that was sitting next to me in the back passenger seat—I was the only one that had seatbelt on.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Had a lap belt on. What kind of car was it? Yeah.
3: Oh man, it was, uh... <sighs> oh, that
0: that was a. Oh, Force is saying you'd written that it was somewhere that it was a Chrysler uh, Newport, maybe.
3: Yeah, yeah. it was an uh, older Chrysler. I think Newport. Yeah it was old. I mean, it was a muscle car, basically. Okay. The front end of the car was just absolutely demolished. Um, I couldn't even walk when I got out of the car. I tried to step out and I collapsed because my knees were jacked up and three, three of us went by ambulance. And of course, Leroy was unhurt. My buddy that was sitting next to me had, uh, I couldn't even tell you how many stitches in his leg. He was laid wide open. We don't know where he got cut. Well, we all got to the hospital the next day I went over to his house to see the car because they had it towed back to his car, house he wanted to restore it so when I walked up you know to the car I was on crutches <laughs> I looked down and I was like hey Leroy was that headstone sitting there you know last night and he's like you know I don't know and apparently from the crash it had slid out from underneath the seat and it was pretty secure under the seat uh-huh He didn't slide his seat forward or back or anything. And uh, with it being an older car, you wouldn't have thought it wouldn't have jumped the bar or anything, but it did. And it was actually pressed against the accelerator and the brake pedal. Uh And we kind of both looked at each other like, oh, crap. And uh, we made the decision at that point. Once the woman that was with us was out of the hospital and my buddy were all together, we would take it back. And we did. We put it right back where we got it from we set it right back on the bottom half of the headstone
0: okay wow did the pregnancy have any complications or did that that worked out for her okay after that accident
3: yeah um it was chest trauma there was no abdominal trauma thankfully or ultrasounds and everything came back clear which was good that's great but three out of the four of us that were in the car were injured out of the deal and we thought it was kind of a little freaky and probably a bit ironic that that headstone was sitting right there and you know we went back and so to speak made our peace by putting it back wow and uh yeah <laughs> it was a pretty creepy deal i mean the other two that were with us when they found out about that because well they were with us when it was removed right so we took it back and put it in place and <laughs> we did that in broad daylight
0: yeah yeah i bet were there any dates do you remember any dates being on that headstone Is that why you were saying that you thought if the year was off, because it seemed more recent than the 1800s? Yeah, Yeah.
3: it was more recent than 16s or 1700s. It was 1800s, because the town began in the early 1800s, if I remember correctly, for logging and whatnot. So I want to say it was in the 1880s.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: There are people buried there from the early 1900s is i can't remember when the last residents moved out it was in the early 1900s i know that Uh all that's left of the town are stone bases a lot of it's overgrown and stuff i'm not sure what happened with the dwellings themselves if they just crumbled or people tore them down or what happened
0: and one last question on the Newport, just because i'm curious because i'm kind of a motorhead so was that was that a two-door or a four-door
3: no that was a Four-door. Yeah, because
0: it came both ways. I was just curious.
3: Wait a minute, I'm trying to think here. Now you got me thinking again. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a 4 Okay, yeah. It was a 4 Right, so it's a tank. So slid out the pit. It's a big
0: car, right? Yeah.
3: yeah. It, was a, it was a land bar. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was like my old 76 Impala. Oh, there
0: you go, yeah. Um,
3: his was, I think, a 70 or something like that. 70 or 69, it was an older car.
0: And what you were talking about, just to clarify, under the seat there, the frame, there's a crossbar, right? So the yep. what you're saying yep. is that the headstone, which you had said in one your article that you thought it was as much as 80 pounds, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That thing weighed a ton. So you're saying they it took two of us to put it in the car. Right, right. <laughs> Safely. Right. And so you're saying it was in a little well. It was in that well under the seat there, and somehow it had jumped yeah. out onto the pedals.
3: Absolutely. And and there was no damage to it. I mean, there was no, nothing from the interior of the car cracked it or damaged it or anything. It was intact, just the way we placed it under there. Right. Because we had to open the back door and slide it up and over.
0: Right. Right. Okay. That's great. Well, this is a great story, man. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. After you guys took it back, any more unusual Mm -hmm. events or problems for anybody?
3: Not per se for myself, I've lost contact with the other three individuals that were involved. I had left for the military later on, went active duty from reserve status. Uh-huh. And after uh, I got out of the military, I went back to Southern Michigan. I'm from the Detroit area originally. And uh, from that point, I, I hired on to my first fire department and worked from 1988 until just uh, about two years ago here in fire service, VMS, just retired, and went back to trucking. Wow. <laughs> That's it. So, I was just back up there a few years ago just checking things out and it it looks nothing like it did back in the 80s.
0: Oh, really? What's
3: different? A lot of headstones are missing. Obviously, there was other people that were destroying property and stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's still headstones there and I know the historical society and some other groups up in the area are looking to restore those headstones and or replace them so
0: yeah sure sure
3: then the last time i was up there apparently the night before somebody uh pulled up in a uh pickup truck or a car or something or other and opened fire on some other people that were there with a shotgun
0: that was the night before you went yeah was that 2009
3: uh yeah it sure was
0: because we heard that story somewhere else about people getting shot shot at so you were there the next day
3: yeah i was there the very next day my brother and uh My mom, stepdad, and my uh, youngest sister live up there, and my nephew, too, and sister-in-law. My brother actually called me when I was on my way up there and gave me the heads up, and uh, I caught word of it from the local paper. It made paper, too, and local television news, if I remember correctly.
0: Was this in Grayling?
3: Yeah, Parashini is just south of Grayling. It's not even marked on a map anymore. The only way that you can get there or find it is by GPS, and it's by gps only because they're trying to keep vandals out of the place
0: right sure sure
3: it seems as though the cemetery is fairly decimated
0: yeah that's the sad thing right it's been severely vandalized it seems like
3: Mm -hmm. yeah and i know kids still go out there to this day you know i get goosebumps even thinking about the place but yeah they still go out there for a thrill and you know because of the legends and where the legends originated i don't know allegedly there used to be a shack there near the cemetery and of course you know allegedly a Native American used to oversee it and somebody killed him I don't know how if there's any truth even a speck of truth to that legend so it's hard to say I mean I kind of like going into old places like that and checking them out and there's some nostalgia there and history obviously but of course I'm almost 50 now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do you remember a name, a first or last name or anything on that headstone?
3: To save my life, I don't remember what the the woman's name was. Right, okay. I know the headstone was fairly worn, Uh as most of the older ones are there. I mean, I still wonder who may have taken the remainder of the headstone. All that's there is the base. Right. That's it. Right. And and that was a pretty sizable headstone. Like I said, it was probably three to four foot tall and probably at least two to two and a half feet wide. Wow. And probably about four to five inches thick. It was a pretty sizable piece of stone.
0: Yeah. So what about the story of the ghost train? Do you know anything about that?
3: Allegedly, if you're out there around midnight, you can hear a train whistle, and some people have reported seeing the uh, headlamp of an old locomotive that used to run through there.
0: Wow. Okay.
3: If you're out on the tracks, either by foot or crossing the tracks, around that time, after around midnight or shortly thereafter is when you can hear it and see it.
1: Well, that's going to wrap up tonight's show on Parashaney, Michigan. Special thanks to Linda Godfrey, Debbie Chestnut, and Eric Liddy Sr. We'll be back next week with Mothman screenwriter Richard Haddam.
0: You told him, right? No, he's... I'm hoping that he's going to listen to tonight's oh, show. Oh, Special thanks to John Boland.
2: Hi, I love your show. This is Allison Bentley. Hi, I'm Lynn Hi, I'm Judanna, And I give permission mm-hmm. to Astonishing Legends to use my voice yes, however they see fit. Galaxy-wide galaxy galaxy wide, galaxy wide, in perpetuity.
0: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most
1: importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook patreon twitter tumblr google plus and instagram copyright scott philbrook and forrest burgess good night